0: If we really want to be prepared for AI, then there are a number of things that we need to do. They are CEO Blackwell, the Chief Digital Officer for the City of London. He's a 20 years experience across public and private sector. I'm CDO of London, which has 32 boroughs, each with their own independent IT and innovation play. Oh, yeah. At the moment, to retrofit London will cost, and I think this is a conservative figure, at least 100 billion. Yes. One in every five people in our city is either employed by the creative industry or employed in a job linked to the creative industry. Biggest immediate threat about people's copyrighted works being exploited by AI products. We've got deepfakes. I am not Morgan Freeman. We've got very easy to create and manipulate products and services. If the public, who are becoming increasingly aware that a deepfake is easy to do, think that it could be done, then where's their trust in all news sources? What's Sadiq Khan like as a boss? He is.
1: uh... The Alfie Wotton Podcast. Theo Blackwell. Hello. Awesome. So you're London's Chief Digital Officer. I am. That's a cool title, man. It is, it
0: is, yeah. But for those that don't know, what what does London's CDO do? So my day to day is advising the mayor on improving connectivity, how we join up data uh, as a city, how we improve collaboration and do open innovation. Uh, also deal with things like data ethics, okay. and also some wider issues over IT and smart cities. Okay,
1: cool. You're six years in
0: now. Yes, I am. Yeah, six years. Okay, cool. You've got a bit of a different background though, because
1: you you weren't like a technologist or a developer, were you? No. So it's interesting. Like, how how does a non technical person become London's chief digital
0: officer? Not that's
1: not like a, meant in any offence, as well. No, like... no,
0: no, no. It's a good question. Um, yes. Yeah, so my background is both in the public and private sector. I worked in the video games industry. I also worked in uh, local government for 15 years. And one of the principal jobs that I undertake is how we bring local authorities together. Now, there's two aspects to that. One is the ability to talk to local authorities and sure. understand their language, and the other bit is to assemble a team and capability here at City Hall, which we didn't have before Sadiq uh, appointed me, um, that would you know, have the proper data, technology, design people that we need to make those conversations with local government and the tech sector work uh, effectively. So in a sense, um, I've been able to create the team yep. of the people with all of the skills uh that we need so for you it's it's about vision it's about
1: strategy it's about leadership it's less about being able to code, like code or something
0: no no my coding's
1: pretty pretty rusty yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. so you are um you've been working for sadiq for the the fourth term right so he's been the mayor ever since you started the position
0: that's right yeah, yeah in
1: 2017 okay what's
0: sadiq khan like as a boss oh that's a really good question um he is uh, a really well-read uh, politician in yeah. the sense that I've worked with other politicians before who, um, and, and there's probably one famous example of a politician who is renowned for not reading their briefs. Who's Sadiq that? is the opposite. I, I won't say, but, <laughs> but, but but you know, something to do with London in the past. But um, Sadiq is, um, you know, you put something in front of Sadiq and he'll read it um you know, with with detail and ask uh, really important and sincere uh, questions of it. Yeah. And that is actually really refreshing for working in local government. Um, refreshing and, I think, uh, important because it holds me to account. Yeah. Um, and also, I'm confident that there's someone I can work with who's across the things, often quite technical and complex things, that I'm working on myself. Okay.
1: You have been uh, in the UK for a, for, for a long time, right? But you are American. I am, Originally, yes, originally right? Yeah, so, done your research. I always do your research, <laughs> man. You, you were naturalised in, in 1999. Yeah. Okay. So there seems to be a lot of, in in my opinion, a almost lack of ambition in, in the UK as opposed to like Silicon Valley uh, when it comes to building big tech projects and, and companies. Um, we've seen this from like the size of funding rounds to, to the way that CEOs are, uh, are treated in, in the press. And just, just recently with the Las Vegas sphere, for example, I know we were talking about doing one in, in London. And um, as far as I know, it's not going ahead or, or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I was speaking to Tom Blumfield, who the founder of Monzo, and he, he, he left London to go mm-hmm. to the Valley because of this uh, sort of Perception and in, in this reason, what, what what do you think? Do, do you think like London is has got a, a smaller mindset when it comes to thinking about building big tech moonshots? Like, what's what's
0: your take on that? Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think it's different, and how do we fix it as well? Like, no, if, if there is a problem. yeah, but I just yeah. think it's different. Yeah, um, I think that um, there is a certain um, mentality of Silicon Valley. I felt it when I went there just yeah. after I became uh, CDO um there is a uh, a drive and a you know an energy that you get over there which comes with lots of people who are kind of fairly like-minded yeah. being in the same place. Um we have lots of like-minded people here in the same place in London. Um they might uh have slightly different pursuits yeah. than 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 sort of tech builders, but we have huge specialisms in areas such as life sciences. And in fintech, um, and uh, in the creative industries. So um, I don't think. I mean, I, I always, you know, it's always the case that politicians, and particularly the current prime ministers, getting obsessed by unicorns yeah, yeah. and size. Um, but I think we need to look at the whole picture because what we have here is just a vast and kind of interacting ecosystem that's grown over the last 20 years, which is truly exciting. Not to say that there aren't problems, because I do think there is a challenge with British entrepreneurialism. There isn't so much uh, um, that, you know, the government seems to point the finger as like there must be structural problems standing in the way of companies becoming unicorns. I mean, the fact is that quite a lot of entrepreneurs have chosen exit themselves to those US unicorns so like is the challenge within people who say actually I don't want to build a unicorn I'd rather sell my company I don't know but we certainly have great strengths uh, here in London yeah
1: there's definitely a lot less unicorns in the the UK right as opposed to to the US and I I don't know I I agree with you I, I don't think it's some kind of system or structure that's been put in place but it's probably more of a mindset thing you're right in the the valley like everyone's surrounded by each other so that seems to be a a hub for entrepreneurship and and innovation
0: and we have that here but it's just a lot smaller
1: in in my opinion
0: yeah remember we've done things in slightly different ways in america you might create paypal yeah but that fixes a problem in their banking system where lots of people still use checks you know (laughs) and whereas here we've got open banking where uh, customers, uh, you know, compared, compared to other countries, customers have a, a really amazing experience of transferring money between their accounts yeah. and to each other. And that's created a whole load of innovation. So, again, it's kind of like different. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the kind of problems that are solved by some of the unicorns that are created in America, in a sense, have been solved through different means here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned
1: PayPal just then. I asked you about Sadiq Khan a second ago. Yeah, yeah. PayPal's creator is, is Mr. Musk. Uh, Elon Musk, or one of the yeah. founders anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Uh, what, what, what's your opinion on Elon Musk? Quite a controversial guy, obviously. I mean, I think, you know, he's he's rightfully got into hot water recently over his his comments. Okay. Um, and I had to make amends for him. I mean, personally, I find um, the user experience of his now main product, X. Twitter to yeah, yeah. Uh, X even, uh, to have, um, yeah, substantially diminished okay. recently. Okay. I mean, I find it as a way of engaging with people now like almost useless. And I think we've got a – I think there's a challenge in the sort of direction of that company from something that was a quite well-known and and fairly, um, you know, kind of well-accepted and, fairly, and respected products, mm-hmm. the direction of travel in which it's gone where people are actually just – Exiting it because either they don't agree with values or they find the user experience um, much diminished. I mean, like you know, the 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 difference in feed experience is is very very. Um, it's very changed since the change in ownership. Do, yeah. do you mean in terms of like more more bots or more views
1: that you don't agree with, or, or what, what do you mean?
0: It's just uh, like just random spam, really. You know, so it's not even a kind of like opening up. It's just um, it's it's really just sort of, um, you know, it's not it's not the same uh, experience that people kind of had grown to know. Trust not saying that there weren't challenges before.
1: Hey, this podcast is brought to you by WeLoveAlpha.com. If you're looking to grow and hire and scale your software engineering team in the UK, and go to welovealpha.com to hire the best software developers on the market. Everything across Java to C Sharp to PHP to Python to React and Angular and mobile and more. Go to welovealpha.com to hire the best software engineers in the UK now. I've watched a lot of your interviews where you talk about fixing the plumbing. Yes. Right. I think that's a, that's a great term. I like that. Um, but what do you mean by it? So let's say your job, right? You say your, your job is to fix the plumbing. That's kind of yeah. what you're hearing.
0: I mean, what I mean by fixing the plumbing is that if we really want to be prepared for AI and we really want to make good on politicians' commitments to use AI truly for civic benefit, mm-hmm. citizens' benefit rather than consumer yeah. benefit, yeah. Um, then there are a number of things that we need to do. And in a particular role as a city, there are. Um, it's not acceptable as a city that we, you know, as we inherited, we inherited a vast kind of copper connectivity yeah. legacy. We need to have full fibre to propel uh, London into, you know, the 5G and, and further network age. That's really, really important. Fix the plumbing, number one. We need to make sure that we can share data better. So that's open and non-open data yeah. so that people can create great things, great data services uh, and digital uh, products and services uh, from that data. There are challenges sharing public data that are due to technology, due to culture, due to administration and due to kind of lack of support from government that could be truly beneficial to citizens. Um We also talk about fixing the plumbing in terms of innovation and collaboration. Sure. I'm CDO of London, which has 32 boroughs, each with their own independent kind of IT and innovation place. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for me, fixing the plumbing there is to find a way in which we can bring those CDOs of each of the boroughs together and say, how can we do more Together. So that's why we've, we've established an organisation called the London Office of Technology and Innovation. Now okay. it's with 28 out of the 32 boroughs. So we can have that conversation. We never had that conversation before. Yeah. Um, and I also think there is, you know, on the more techni- technical side, there is a big fixing the plumbing issue with. Which holds back the use of uh, the use of sharing of data legitimately, which is uh, wrapped up in the legacy IT that um, sort of dominates many of the things that local government does. Mm. If you went into housing, social care in its various forms, um, uh, planning, and other elements of local government, those verticals are dominated. By one or two major suppliers. Um, there's very limited competition. There's loads of vendor lock-in. There's no little to no innovation in those areas. The data isn't stewarded very well. Mm. These all these we, local authorities sign contracts um, that uh, ultimately mean that they have they are often uh, charged for extracting their own data to use it for purposes other than the original business purpose. So if you were thinking about transactional data that you might want to to, uh, use to understand not just the nature of that transaction, but for poverty, for the development of a new service, that comes at a price. Mm -hmm. And so these restrictive contracts, the dominance of these firms that are basically headed up by sales teams um have have lost their original innovative spark when they came onto the scene, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and are now uh holding back, I think, pu- public service innovation in this country. So it's quite a big challenge. So what I call fixable planning is many things, ranging from connectivity to joining up data, collaboration, uh, and indeed uh this big, big challenge of of legacy IT which actually isn't just a public sector concern, it also impacts the private sector as well. That's a lot of plumbing, man. You're a, there's, a, there's a lot of plumbing. Like Mario. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, you started, the first piece of plumbing that you talked about there was AI. I briefly spoke with the Prime minister, uh, Richie Sulek, at London Tech Week um, a few a few months back, um, just up the road. And uh, he talked about how AI on stage with, uh, I think it was with Demis, DeepMind, and... He's obviously really obsessed with it. I know he's made a £100 million AI task force, which Ian Hogarth is is running. Um, what, what are your views on, on artificial intelligence? It, it seems like 100 million is, is a tiny number for us as a country to invest into it, as opposed to like Microsoft just making a you know, 10 billion investment just in one company and in, into open AI, right? And we're talking about doing that as a, as a nation. Um, surely there's a lot more that we could be doing. It's a good starting point. But what, what are your, your views on AI? And, and what are your views on how, I guess, the Prime Minister or the UK in general is going to seize upon this as opposed to, to the US?
0: yeah i'm pro a i uh, you know in all in in its various forms um you know you know the the, the purist would say ai has been around for a long time you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, been yeah. using machine learning as a city certainly of automation and so on for 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 a long time um i i think the government is right to obviously invest in ai capability yeah. um when I looked at their microsite that they'd spun up to say do the announcement um It did make me think, however, that they've fallen into that old trap of, which is quite common for this government, to kind of refer to, when they think about government, what they mean is Whitehall. Where all the data is that will transform people's lives is held by local government right across the country in various silos. So the government's making this investment in AI in government for Whitehall not for government as a whole. And so what's lacking in their announcement is how do we free up that data that's held by the many local authorities across the country providing the same kind of services, often locked into these IT contracts, um, and share that and use that for the things that are truly going to transform our society. Let me give you an example. Um... One of the big challenges, and actually one of the things that really mobilizes the public and private sector leadership at the moment on, on you know who and they 're willing to discuss data on uh, data sharing uh, on this voluntarily right across board, is climate change uh, mitigation yeah. or, or net zero, but just taking net zero net zero uh, targets will only be achieved through the use of technology and data. Mm. Meaning not just through deep analysis of what the problem is, but by new business models and new business models that appeal to people to say, yeah, I'll, I'll put a bit of my own money into that because I can see the return. It means something to me. I, I agree that as a householder, it's right for me to stump up a bit, bit of money uh, each each month for the next X number of months to get solar panels and insulation because it's part of a business model that someone else is investing in and the government's yeah. investing in sure. um, so that we can make this change happen. At the moment, to retrofit London will cost, and I think this is a conservative figure, at least $100 pounds. <laughs> right? Okay. Less than 1% of that will come from government. Okay. So the rest of it will come from somewhere else. So that's where we need data, design, new business models yeah,
1: yeah.
0: To, um, to come up with the solution. And that's the kind of power of computers, the power of, uh, you know, um, deep learning yeah. and other things to model what it would take for us to meet that target and what people have to do. So... I think it's really good, just to you know just go about, really good that they've invested the money. One of the challenges with AI, it sounds like a small amount of money if it's just completely open-ended. Sure, sure. But if you're saying, we're going to test something end-to-end, we're going to redesign an entire process or create a new one for a purpose then it starts to make sense.
1: Hey, really quick video, just to give you a free subscription to Coda magazine. Coda is the number one publication for all the latest tech news, expert insights, and exclusive industry interviews. With Coda, you get the inside scoop on what's happening with Elon Musk, with Bill Gates, with Jeff Bezos, with Mark Zuckerberg, and so much more. So if you work in the technology industry, then I'd highly recommend that you give Coda a read today. Just scan the QR code on the screen for free access now, or go to welovealpha.com forward slash magazine to get your free subscription today. AI, I agree with with, with what you're saying. I mean, like the, the amount of data that's out there, we could be, we really should be using AI to, to, to capture all of it and and you know and, and, and get some really interesting and, and good results from that. A lot of people are worried though that the more data that you give to AI systems and the smarter that they become, there is a chance of them basically becoming sentient or, or <laughs> self aware. Not to, I know you like uh, it's Asimov's books. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So uh, you know he's he's done uh, stories in in the I was Yeah, yeah. So yeah,
0: and his short stories. Yeah. So.
1: I mean, look, right now it's a sci-fi idea, but is consciousness uniquely biological? Or if you give enough computing power to something, does it become awake? I mean, that is like the ultimate question when it comes to AI. Do do you think AI could become self-aware, could become
0: conscious, could become sentient? I mean, flippantly, you know, if there comes a day where uh, Camden Council becomes conscious as opposed to Islington Council, um, I'd be interested to hear what their exchange would be, uh, but um, or London versus New York. I don't know the answer to that question. People say that that sort of thing is very, very far off. Yeah. What I would say is that, you know, we can talk about generative AI uh, in a second, but where I see the application of AI actually happening, it's not in a kind of, as I say, open-ended you know, pour all the data out and then kind of outcomes, sort of some semi-conscious, you sure, know, sure, sure. thing. Um, it is more like a collection of really useful use cases. Mm. So we are seeing the, um, the uh, use of AI in uh, Transport for London to do things like um, help us understand movement around the city. Uh, to help us understand um, using using computer vision. We can, um, uh, instead of like having human counters on a rainy Saturday sitting on a footbridge yeah. overlooking a road, yeah. counting cars and bicycles, we've got computer vision just going, that's a bicycle, that's a scooter, you know, that's a horse, <laughs> that's a bus, um, and doing a uh, much more accurate assessment of Mobility. I mean, these these things have to be done when you're running a city to actually just understand and model movement. Um, we see the phasing of traffic lights uh, by Transport for, for London using machine learning to understand and and to alter um, timings on crossings and uh, and things like that. When when it becomes congested, use AI to. Scrape uh, social media to understand uh, when a major incident happens. In local authorities, we're seeing AI being used to tackle fly tipping in in South London. Um, an amazing program which um, you know dealt with a major you know issue and gripe that people have, and found out the answers to it. On the one hand, it was because of poverty. On the other hand, it was also due to an illegal group of people going around and making money. It happened at a certain type time of day that hadn't been anticipated. It allowed enforcement and other action to be taken. Um, so there are like a range of cases where AI in its various forms is being used, yep. but they are What I would say is, is, you know, if you sort of move away from the science fiction, they are purpose led cases like this is the purpose. We want to tackle fly tipping. We want to understand, you know, who's using our roads um, and uh, enabling us to do that much more efficiently and effectively than than ever before. Now, when it comes to generative AI, which really got people um, going over the summer, then I think, um, you know, we're still on a journey. Uh, on that one, I mean certainly some local authorities have been experimenting with generative AI for um things like uh, assistance in translation services because've yeah, got many yeah. community languages being spoken um and uh, maybe uh, responses, uh, you know, some, you know, suggested responses to letters and things like that. But I think that there's, you know, one has to be like a little bit careful in, in local authorities. I heard of an example the other day of uh, some, some government department trying to use generative AI to collate consultation responses. Well, you know, is that legal? You know, you know, Should should is it not part of the process that a human being actually read a consultation response? Yeah, yeah. Um, is that not judicially reviewable? So I, I think, you know, there's certain things where I think there needs to be a sense check before people uh, go down that road. The most immediate issue that we've had with Gen AI, yeah. in a sense, has not been so much about um, the large language model end of it, um, which... Uh, in my understanding is you know still you know it's definitely still being developed yeah. there're definite uh challenges there it's more costly to do and you've got to you know bring more people together to do it correctly in the world of audio and images however we've got deep fakes we've got very easy to create uh, and manipulate um uh, products and services uh, coming out there. The biggest uh, immediate threat was seen by our, our, our uh, creative workers in London. One in every five people in our city is either employed by the creative industry or employed in a job linked to the creative industry. So we started a major programme when they got concerned about people's copyrighted works being exploited by um, AI products without any recompense. That's a challenge. And then the second challenge is the community cohesion one. Not so much, although there has been examples of this, of deepfakes being used in moments of crisis or yeah. Yeah. Uh, for political ends, um, but it, it's almost like the consequence of the ability to have it. If the public, who are becoming increasingly aware that a deep fake is easy to do, yeah. think that it could be done, then, where's their trust in all uh, news
1: sources? How long Go. do you think that will be? Like, like until? Because right now, you you know, deep fakes are there, but they're a little bit. Uh, you can tell that they're not quite real. Yeah. Um, maybe to me or me and you watching it, we could probably notice. Yeah. The, just somebody sitting on a bus scrolling on TikTok, they yeah. might not be able to tell. But how long do you think it will be until? anybody can just create a video of anybody saying anything i'm I'm screwed because there's hundreds of hours of me doing podcasts (laughs) but like like like, like that's gonna be really really difficult for governments you know if i can create a video of rishi sunak saying or sadiq khan saying anything and nobody will know if that's real or fake and then who 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 announces if that is real like and then who's you know, fact-checking the fact-checkers, like what, yeah, what do you and I, I think
0: lawmakers case. have a really uh, difficult role here. Yeah. So my answer to that is that you know, um, you know what society normally does when you know what society has done historically when there is a uh, qu- there are questions to be resolved, is they set up institutions. You know, so we set up the electoral commission to make sure that elections are run fairly and sure. to produce co- and not just set the rules but to produce guidance to steer people in the right direction um we we have civil society and so there there is a sort of there's a gap which no doubt will is being filled and will have to be filled where um actors step in and produce guidance and steer um platforms and content creators and others uh, in the in the right direction. Of course, there's a role for legislation, but the int- you can't just legislate without that kind of middle layer of institutions saying we've researched this, yeah. we found out this, therefore the law must change. It took three years for the Online Harms Bill <laughs> to make its way through, and rightfully it passed legislation on uh, criminalising uh, deepfake uh, pornography and, the, and 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 and. Uh, And protecting children um, uh, and so on. That's that's the priority and the evidence base was there. But then there's a kind of unfinished business bit about deepfakes being used for misinformation. You can't just immediately go in going like, I'm concerned, therefore we should legislate. You need to ensure that there's the evidence base. And there's sort of two two aspects to this question. Because one is the creation of the deepfake itself, which will become more and more, uh, you know, uh, lifelike and, 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 and accurate. And the other one is the propagation of it, Mm. which is via the social media platform. And I still think there is a big question to be had of social media platforms, of allowing access to independent researchers to see how messages are amplified within their platforms so that we can understand the nature of how, uh, how misinformation is spread because the suspicion is in certain cases that the the, the platforms themselves are being manipulated by people who know how to game them so it just takes the combination of the two entities the misinformation producer and those to uh, amplify and spread uh, misinformation now this is all you know well beyond my pay grade because ultimately these are matters of law and freedom of speech and so on and so forth. Yeah. But from a city perspective, we've we've we have a, a slightly different role because like cities don't make cities in the UK don't really make yeah. laws. We yeah. are responsible for community cohesion. So it is right for us to actually have a place in this discussion and debate around what government or making government aware of the dangers. And um And not just, you know, allowing them to sort of be in this space of like, you know, it's nothing we can do. It's all free speech. When in fact, it could have very, very damaging uh, real world consequences for people and communities. Sure. I mean, there probably is a balance to be found, right? Absolutely. With everything. Yeah. What about before
1: we talked about AI for a bit there? Just um, before we had AI, the, the big theme of the tech headlines was the metaverse. Yeah, that's what everyone was focused on. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. now become old, old news. Well, it's not old news, but it's become less uh, less on the headlines yeah. and, and AI is. Well, what are your thoughts on VR, AR, mixed reality? Do Do you see us all living in some kind of digital world in in a couple of years? You know, what What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I think I think uh, AR VR um, will. Uh I think uh, I, I think the the uptake of that is coming very, very soon. We'll see it in our uh, public realm. Um we'll see it um in culture. Um there's an extension you know, obviously you've got e um, esports yeah. and the games industry. So I think it's a Kind of very live and exciting um, thing to to uh, d- development thing to happen. It's definitely like an emerging technology that will probably land sooner than most um, on the metaverse, um, which is a kind of you know it's interesting when you talk to people about the metaverse and talk to people about augmented or virtual reality. Sort of like some people like exactly the same thing. You know, as as with anything, um, definitions in this area are quite fluid. Yeah. Um, I mean, on the metaverse in relation to cities. I was recently over in Barcelona Smart City Expo and South Korea have been making quite a big play around uh the metaverse and government. So they created virtual town halls. They've created services like metaverse in the metaverse yeah, yeah. and they brand it metaverse. And um that's really interesting um and uh then I kind of look at the nature of it and think okay is is that something that that one wants to replicate? Um, Elsewhere. And undoubtedly, I think there are benefits of having virtual walkthroughs and interactivity in public services. I think it helps people with certain health conditions um, and can be extremely interactive. But a large part of what the South Korean model was, was about gamification and tokenization. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like a social contract thing. Yeah. You do a bit of recycling, you get X number of you know tokens, and you can use those tokens at a shop sure. in order to get 10% off something or get something. Now, let's set aside the metaverse and think about that social contract model, because that's the thing that lies behind their approach to a smart city. Mm. And um, that's something that they've kind of democratically decided to do and is, you know, and is right in, in the context of that city being deployed. I don't think that model necessarily is something that we here would... Would follow, We're two stubborn British people. It may, it, may, it may well be that. It may well be that we want to have a much more discreet incentivisation for us to do things rather than yeah. having a full model within one platform where you might feel that you know, someone knows that you've done recycling and you've done this and you've done that and it's all part of a wider kind of package for you as a citizen. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that sits very well um, with um with us and so i would just kind of go back you know and and um uh, i was i was talking to a to a uh, someone who's classified smart cities uh, across the globe um uh and and he he's he's sort of classified a kind of south korea china model singapore model as a sort of safe smart city model where you have very much a social contract based approach you've got kind of european gdpr uh so kind of purpose-led uh approaches so more like a smart city would look more like a collection of of use cases rather than something that's you know connected in one big you know sort of harvesting platform um And then you'd have a a kind of an American model, which um, you see cities often do quite big deals with particular tech firms and and such like that. So so I think you're beginning to see a kind of differentiation between sort of continents on how they're approaching smart cities. And so that kind of metaverse thing very much spoke to me as part of this kind of social contract tokenization model, which I don't think necessarily flies here. Prior to the metaverse, the the former hype
1: was really like, blockchain and and crypto tokenization sort of be you know tokens crypto there's some connection there but i know you mean it for a slightly different purpose but but what are your thoughts on on bitcoin on crypto
0: i mean i I just didn't get involved in in there was a there was a very big moment of of hype where some mayors of u.s cities were taking part of their salary in crypto and all of that and then there was nfts and um it's you know, and and you know, and you know, obviously there was the whole, um, you know, blo- blockchain uh, push uh, before that. I mean, fundamentally, what is the problem that you're trying to solve here? Uh, and I think I've always been against the whether it's in smart cities or with other forms of technology, which also include include, include AI. There's let's just be wary of the kind of solutionist tendency that. You know, we don't know quite what it's going to be used for, but it's really great and it can do loads of stuff. <laughs> um, quite often what people like is to do something simply and really well, Okay, you know, and make their lives easier. And so I was always a little bit unconvinced by the total proponents of blockchain, partly because I didn't really fully, I don't have a PhD to fully understand it. And that always kind of warns me off. It uh, also warns, warns me off investing in some stocks and shares as well. You But fundamentally, um, I think that we need to start with, you know, what's the user need? What's the problem we need to solve here? And then kind of build from that,
1: Do you think the UK would ever adopt its own, you know, digital
0: currency? I have no idea. Do you think that would be a good idea? I have no idea. (laughs) I literally have no idea. I mean, that would be something for the Bank of England, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I suppose uh, if if, uh, I was CDO of... uh, Like, in New York, they've got much more um, kind of... uh, Proximity to their financial district than we do in in London in terms of policy and things like that. So they yeah. would have, you know, opinions on su- such matters. I, I do think that, um, you know, there is a you know, it's not so much as a the, the question of 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 a of a digital currency, but I do think issues like understanding, you know, people's digital identity yeah. is really uh is becoming a fundamental question having something that you can you know who you, you one would be able to go through various public services in life without having to go through the same forms over and over again
1: it's like Worldcoin, would... coin have you seen the, the orb that can scan your eye altman, i have not seen that. that no i'd remember it if i had though <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a sub altman uh, OpenAI, he uh, invested in a company which creates a digital passport for you. Right. He's trying to do it before a government does, in my opinion, because he's, a lot of people are worried that if a government has a digital, I mean, they already have passports, right? But a digital passport, similar to what we've seen in China, how they could turn off your your, your bank account if you said something that, that, you know, you disagreed with the government on something. That sounds very West Coast. Yeah, <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What what are you? Let's let's finish off with with something more upbeat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what are you excited about going into twenty twenty four? I think I think we'll publish this either at the end of this year or early next year, just depending on uh, our schedule. But what we've talked about AI. We've talked about the metaverse. We've talked about blockchain. You talked about smart cities. Talked about big data. What what are you like really excited about tech wise going into into next year? Like what what innovation is getting you really interested right now?
0: Well, for us at the city hall, we'll be Uh, launching our new data platform uh, which is called Data for London. Uh, It uh, effectively acts as a kind of library service for where the city's important data is. So just like you know back back in the old days you'd go along to a library and you'd want to find out where a book was. Uh, This index will say Uh, with the data that we hold already this data is open data it's held over there Mm. so people can access it Um, or this data for those non-open data sets that we hold that require a data sharing agreement is held over there like the archives and um, you know you need to do this in order get this agreement in order to access it so we're kind of flipping that idea of a kind of all-harvesting smart city um, uh, sort of data store uh, around. Yeah. um, And instead seeing us as we're actually governed, that there are many data holders in London and that we need to combine our data for for specific purposes, let's say net zero, climate change mitigation or whatever, anti-poverty, here's the data, here's how easily you can bring it together. So by... Kind of creating a big register or library of of the metadata. Okay. Uh, so the description of the data. Um, we can create a better foundation for us creating good digital data services, and we think this is a kind of lower cost, more effective way of opening up data yeah. than you know some of the big promises that have been. Kind of put on us by firms saying, "Yeah, create a big smart city platform. This is what you can do." But fundamentally, it's like what you do with data, how you talk to citizens and other users on data, it is is driven by the purpose you want to use it for. Yeah. And uh, we think from this, we will have we'll be able to create quite a lot of really uh, useful and helpful services. Um, and insights that can help us, especially around that zero. I'm yeah. all for that. Open sourcing it and making yeah. it available. Yeah. yeah. Transparency yeah. is is key, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not all open data, uh, but it's it's the the platform will tell you where where that where that data is. So, really excited about that. I mean, obviously, next year in the UK is an election year. Yeah. So um, there could be a change of government. Uh, I think that. Um, There's a real opportunity with the new government to look again at how we um, see data, uh, you know, in government as a whole rather than Whitehall to transform public services. I think this government's just missed a big trick. It just didn't see it uh, of how uh, when you talk about the power of AI to transform public services... How you've just got to see the bigger picture of like where services are experienced, and um yeah, so they've, they've just been they haven't been uh, they haven't been across that at all, but they've made uh, investments, you know maybe they'll change their mind, uh, but um, I think there's uh, there's an interesting political moment uh, coming up in this country. Cool, all right. Thank blackwell thank you
1: thank you hey thanks for watching this podcast make sure that you like subscribe follow comment etc etc and I'll see you in the next episode.